0: Well, if you'll open your Bible this morning to Revelation chapter 21, I want us to begin a series of sermons on heaven. And I know this is a strange time of year to start a series on heaven. Here we are just a few days before Thanksgiving, and you would think that the sermon today and next week would be about Thanksgiving and all the things that we're thankful for. Well, friend, I want to say this. I'm thankful for heaven. And I'm thankful that heaven is not only in my heart, but heaven is in my future. And it's in your future if you've ever been saved. I was reading that verse last week in Hebrews, and I absolutely love it, where the Bible says that we are waiting for that city which has foundations... Whose builder and whose maker is God. We are on our way to heaven. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about all the things that we experience on earth that we never have to deal with in heaven. Aren't you thankful to know that in heaven there won't be any coronavirus? It won't be there. In heaven, there's no injustice, there's no racism, there's no crime, there's no rioting, there's no looting, there's none of that in heaven. And I'll tell you something else I'm excited about. In heaven, there are no elections, and that makes me very happy because I think this election is about to wear us out in heaven, the king has already been crowned, and his kingdom will never end. His term will never expire. And so today, I want us to begin our study of Revelation chapters 21 and 22. We have come to the best part of this book, and today we're going to be thinking about what heaven will be like. Now, if you like to take notes, this will be an easy sermon to jot some things down on. If you're not a note-taker, I think it'll be an easy sermon just to follow mentally in your mind. But I want to give you four things today that will make heaven very special, and four reasons today that you should look forward to heaven. And if you've never been saved, four reasons that you ought to get saved so you can one day end up in this place. First of all, the thing that I'm first of all excited about in heaven is that everything in heaven will be new. Everything will be new. You know, nothing on earth is new very long. You buy a car, it smells new for a while, and then that smell is gone. You get a new house, doesn't stay new for long. You shave your face, you're newly shaven, men, and then tomorrow you have to shave all over again. Nothing stays new for long, but in heaven, everything will be new. Look at verse one, how John described this. He said, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, also there was no more sea. And so as John, the apostle, is having this vision now of heaven, he's seeing something that is new, a new heaven, and he's talking about a new earth. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But notice that he also says there's no more sea. One of the things that will be different about heaven than, on, than we're experiencing on earth There'll be no ocean in heaven. Today, approximately 70% of the earth's surface is ocean, and yet when we get to heaven, there will not be the Mediterranean Sea, the Atlantic, the Pacific Ocean. None of the oceans will be in heaven, which caused me last week to ask this question. Why do we have the ocean now? What is the purpose of the ocean? In other words, if there's not going to be an ocean in heaven, why do we need an ocean on the earth? It, certainly there's got to be a, a, a better reason for that, just somewhere the dolphins can swim around, the sharks or the whales. Why do we have to have an ocean now? Well, that's an interesting study, and I learned several things. First of all, the first purpose of the ocean when God made it, it does provide food. Did you know that almost 200 billion pounds of fish are caught every year from the oceans. All varieties of fish, shellfish, 200 billion pounds. And so God provided the ocean so that we could have food. Not only that, the ocean, the seas provide travel and they provide shipping. Now, those of us living where we live with the ship channel, we understand about that, that goods are imported into Houston through the ship channel from everywhere in the earth, and that many more goods are exported out of Houston all over the world. Many of those goods that are transported, you think about uh, all the oils and the gases and the, and the plastics and all these things that are made, many of those things could not be, uh, at least in bulk, carried in aircraft. They need to be carried on ships. And so God made the oceans and the seas so that shipping could take place and so that people could travel. Not only that, it is certainly a source of of recreation for people. But I was interested to learn that the ocean produces over half of the world's oxygen. We couldn't survive without the ocean because so much of the oxygen is provided from there. Not only that, it absorbs 50 times more carbon dioxide than the atmosphere. And so without the ocean, we wouldn't have enough oxygen to live. The carbon dioxide would kill us because it wouldn't be there to absorb it. And so God said, they don't maybe understand it, but they need the ocean for their own survival, even if they never go into the ocean. Not only that. The ocean, the sea, uh, what does it do? It transports heat from the equator, thus regulating our climate and our weather patterns. And so the ocean, you may be one of those people who say, I don't really care for the ocean. Well, even if you don't care for it, you ha- you're dependent upon it. So am I. We have to have it to survive. But in heaven... Things will be different. The whole setup of heaven will be different. The the atmosphere of heaven will be different. And we won't need the ocean so we can breathe. We won't need the ocean to provide food for us. We'll have other food that we'll eat in heaven. And when we get to heaven, one of the things that will be new is that there will be no sea. But notice again in that verse, he said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Well, that leads us to ask this question. What's going to happen to this earth if we're going to get a new earth? Uh, What about the earth that we now have? Well, quickly turn back to 2 Peter chapter number three. You're not far from it, and I thought about just trying to describe this, but I think it'd be better to show it to you. In 2 Peter chapter three, beginning in verse number 10, Peter is describing how the world will one day end, and he's describing specifically what will one day happen to planet earth. And he says this, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens, that is the atmospheric heavens, will pass away with a great noise. And the elements, that is the elements of the earth, will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up, literally will be laid bare. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, Whatever manner of persons, uh, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and chastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, that is the, the atmospheric heavens, being on fire, and the elements of the earth will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness And so the Bible is saying here that one day, planet earth is going to melt away. It will be dissolved. Now, if you study this and study what different Bible scholars and theologians uh, say on this and how they're interpreting some of these words like burned up, laid bare, and so on, most theologians say that they understand this to be teaching that one day the earth as we know it will completely melt away, completely gone. Others disagree with that and say that they believe that the earth will not be completely melted away and completely burned up like that, but that God will use the fire and the heat, talked about here, to purify the earth so that the earth will be renewed. But either way, and I couldn't say whether I think it's this or that, who knows really, but either way, we do know this, the earth as we know it will one day be greatly changed. And it will have a new earth. You say, well, John, what are you talking about a, a new earth? Well, a new earth in this sense. Look back in Revelation 21 in verse 2. He said, then I, John, saw the holy city... New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, in our study of Revelation, we have seen that at the end of the seven year period of tribulation, the battle of Armageddon will take place. When Jesus comes back to the earth, the second coming of Christ, we will follow him out of heaven, and he will set up his kingdom on the earth for a thousand years. We've talked about that at great length, the millennium. At the end of the millennium, now remember this, at the end of the millennium, Satan will be sent to hell, and that all takes place in chapter 20. And now in verse 21, John is having a vision where he now sees heaven leaving its current location and descending, coming down to the earth. And so at the end of time, the eternal state, heaven will literally come down to earth. And so everything will be made new. Now, the second thing that excites me about heaven, not only will everything be new, but everything will be perfect. Everything will be perfect. Nothing is perfect on earth, but everything will be perfect in heaven. Let me mention three things specifically that we will enjoy perfectly. Number one, we will have the presence of God. Now, we have the presence of God now in the person of the Holy Spirit. But as it is now, we're walking by faith, not by sight. But in heaven, it won't be that way. In heaven, we'll be walking by sight and not by faith. Look in verse number three. John said, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And so, paradise that was lost in the Garden of Eden, There was Adam and Eve, there were Adam and Eve, and God was walking with them every day in the cool of the day in unbroken fellowship, Genesis 1 and 2. Chapter 3, the devil came along, messed everything up, and from then until now, Satan is messing everything up. But at the very end... Satan will be sent to hell. And so the last two chapters of the Bible mirror the first two chapters of the Bible, Garden of Eden, and now heaven on earth, what do they have in common? God is with his people. He is tabernacle, dwelling, living with his people. And so we will enjoy the perfect presence of God. Now, as I said, we have the presence of God now. And sometimes God allows us to have what we would call a mountaintop experience where we can feel his presence. We can sense his presence. And we've all had these times where we say, God, I just wish it could be like this forever and always. Sometimes it happens at church. Sometimes it happens at home or other place. But in heaven, think about the highest spiritual high that you've ever had. You will have that for all eternity. You'll never come down off that mountain. The perfect presence of God. And not only that, in heaven, not only the presence of God, but the absence of problems. We all have problems in life. You have them, I have them. It's part of life. Look in verse number four. Because you could easily preach, I could, an entire sermon on this verse. But listen to what John said. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Some say that is poetic language. And what that means is there'll be no tears in heaven. Others say, no, that's not poetic language. That's literal language. And what it means is when we get to heaven, initially, we may have some tears, but God's going to wipe them away and we'll never have any new tears. But either way, we know that in heaven, we won't be crying. Why? Because look at the next part of the verse. There should be no more death. You know, death is such a part of life. We have three funerals scheduled for this coming week already. Three of the most faithful men in our church have died during this uh, pandemic. And this week, we'll have a funeral service for David Hood, for D.A. Buell, and for Hoyt Roberts here in our church. Three of the most faithful men that I've ever known. And death is a part of life, and it causes us great sadness. But in heaven, first thing right out of the box, there shall be no more death. That is, we'll have bodies That will that will be exempted from any disease, from any illness and from any death that's one of the great things about heaven we will never die and then the next thing nor sorrow that literally means no anguish no mourning if there's no death there wouldn't be any sorrow like we have now no crying sometimes we cry now and it's not because somebody's died we just cry because we're sad something has happened and it's broken our heart or it's hurt our feelings or it's 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 it's, it's, it's wounded us in some way but not in heaven There'll be no more crying. There should be no more pain. Pain is such a problem. And I know as I'm preaching this message that many of you right now sitting in your pews, listening to this message at home, you are in pain right now. Physical pain, chronic pain, debilitating pain. Friend, the Bible says there's coming a day when we get to heaven, there will be no more pain. We'll be exempted and we'll be forever freed from all the pain. The physical pain that we have on earth. And then it says, for the former things have passed away. In heaven, not only will we have the presence of God, we will experience the absence of all of our problems. Whatever problem you're having right now, you will not have it when you get to heaven. That problem will be gone. All the problems, all the pain, all the heartache that you experience now, you experience them on this side of the grave. Because after death, we go to heaven, and all of that changes, and all of that is gone. The absence of problems. But not only that, there'll also be the restoration of all things. Look in verse 5. Notice what John said. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Now think about this. When you were saved, God made you new. 2 Corinthians 5:17. if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You're new. You have a new relationship with God. Your sins have been forgiven. You have the Holy Spirit living in your heart. You have new desires. You now love the things you used to hate, and you hate the things you used to love. You've been made new if you've been saved. But think about this. When we get to heaven, our circumstances will be made new. You see, when God saves you, he didn't change your circumstances. He didn't change everything in your life. But when we get to heaven, notice again what he says, I make all things new. All broken relationships in heaven will be restored all things that were wrong on earth will be made right in heaven. All grudges on earth will be gone in heaven. We'll all love each other. It'll be wonderful. It'll be perfect. It'll all be new. It'll be a new beginning. It'll be a brand new start. There'll be no tension, no strife. This group or that group will all be together and we'll be loving each other and everything will be restored and everything will be right. Everything will be restored in heaven. And so I've said, first of all, Heaven will be a place where everything is new. Not only that, it is a place where everything will be perfect. But let's keep thinking. Everyone in heaven will be satisfied. Look in verse number 6. It says, and he said to me, John said this, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirst. What is he saying? He's saying in heaven, your thirst will be satisfied and will drink from what? From the fountain of the water of life. On a hot day, nothing tastes better than a cold glass of water. And John is using that imagery to say that when we get to heaven, we will literally drink from the fountain of life. We'll drink that water. But that represents not only the water, but it represents the refreshing and the satisfaction that we will have when we get to heaven. We'll be satisfied. You know, so many times on earth, people are not satisfied. In fact, most of the people I know are not satisfied with their life. They're looking, they're searching, they're not satisfied, they're searching, and they're wanting something they don't have, and they're wanting to manipulate or change their circumstance. If I could just have this, if I could just live there, if I could just experience this, then I would be satisfied. Well, first of all, that's not even true. Because satisfaction doesn't come from things or people. Satisfaction comes from Jesus. And that's why when we get to heaven, we're going to be perfectly satisfied because we'll have perfect fellowship with him, unbroken fellowship with him, problems all gone, and heaven's going to be a place of great satisfaction. You know another reason we're going to be satisfied in heaven? I believe this. We're going to be satisfied in heaven because we will have finished the work that God gave us to do on earth. I don't know how it is with you, but if I have an assignment or a project, and I get on that project and give it my all, when I'm finished with that project, I feel satisfied. You know, back in July, God put something on my heart. He put on my heart strongly to write three booklets. And so I did. I wrote a booklet that we're giving out now what, when, you're, when my heart is overwhelmed. And then I wrote a booklet about bitterness called Don't Take the Bitter Pill that we're going to make available in January. I would make it available in December, but I don't want to make your December bitter. It's Christmas. I don't want to ruin it for you. We're going to wait till January. Everybody's kind of down in the dumps anywhere in January, right? So we'll do bitterness in January. And then I just finished one on the judgment seat of Christ with the subheading, will you receive a crown? And I've been working on it and editing it and back and forth, and it's a slow process, and many people get involved on that. And Friday, this past Friday, and normally I do all my sermons and booklets at home because I can get it done just with no distractions or interruptions, and my mind doesn't go a thousand ways, but I came to church on Friday to try to finish this booklet. And about 7 o'clock on Friday night, I got it finished. And I was so happy to have it done, I just felt like the weight of the world was lifted off of me. And I thought, you know, I've been working on these booklets on and off since July, and I said, I'm finished, and I want to go do something fun tonight. Don't you sometimes just say, I want to do something fun and so I did the funnest thing I could think of. I went to H-E-B on Friday night. <laughs> I needed some palm olive and some other things. And so I went to H-E-B having finished that. And I'm telling you, I was the happiest man in that store because I had this feeling What God told me to do in July, I have finished in November. I've done what God told me to do, and I'm satisfied. Friend, I'm telling you this. If you spend your time on earth doing what God has called, commissioned you, and commanded you to do, when you get to heaven, you're going to be satisfied because you're going to think, I finished what God sent me to do. I was thinking this morning about Jesus. The night before he was crucified or the day before he was crucified, Jesus prayed this prayer to his father. John 17, 4, he said, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work you sent me to do. Jesus was this far from the cross, and yet in his heart there was a satisfaction because he said, I've finished what God gave me to do. I have no regrets. Paul, 2 Timothy 4 and verse 7, not long before his own beheading, Paul wrote these words, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And Paul was saying, I'm ready now to die. I'm ready to go to heaven because I've done what God had called me to do. Let me ask you this. If you died today, could you say, I have fought the good fight? I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I've done what God has called me to do. God had a purpose and a calling on my life. God had a reason for my being on that earth, and I did, to the best of my ability, what God called me to do. And friend, if you do that when you get to heaven, you're going to be satisfied. I'll tell you another reason we're going to be satisfied in heaven. Not only the presence of God, not only the absence of problem, not only the feeling that we've done what God has called us to do, we're going to be satisfied in heaven because finally we're going to see Jesus. Psalm 17 and verse 15. Read it this morning. I, David's writing that psalm, and David said, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. He said, there's coming a day when I'm going to see the face of God. We're going to see the face of Jesus Christ. And that should satisfy us. But not only that, in that same verse, David said, I will be satisfied, listen to this, when I awake in your Likeness. Folks, I'm happy to know that there's a day in my future when not only will I get a body that will not have pain it will not age it will not have these problems we have, I'm thankful to know that in heaven I'm going to have a body that will have no desire to sin. We're going to have bodies, we're going to have new bodies, new minds, and we won't have any of those desires, and we're going to be in his, that's what he said, I will be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. What do we read in 1 John? He said, it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And that should be happening progressively in our lives now. But I'm saying to you that everyone in heaven will be satisfied. So think about this. Heaven, we're just beginning our study. Everything will be new. Everything will be perfect. Everyone will be satisfied. And I wish I could just stop the sermon there and we'd be leaving on a happy note. But I have to add the fourth thing. That is this. Not everyone will be in heaven. Not everyone will be in heaven. In fact, most people won't be there. Jesus said there are two roads in life. There's the narrow road and there's the broad road. And he said, most people are taking this broad road. Well, if most people are going that way, we know they won't end up in heaven. You have to go the narrow way and walk through the narrow gate to end up in heaven. They're the saved and the unsaved. Look in verse 7. He describes the saved. He said, He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And he And he said, and I will be his God and he shall be my son. And so he's describing Christians here as those who overcome. Let me give you a verse to support that. In 1 John chapter 5 in verse number 4, John said this, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. One of the ways you can know that you're saved is that when you go through difficulties in life by the power of God, you are able to overcome those things. And then John said this in that verse, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And so Christians are described as overcomers. And he said, those who overcome shall inherit all things. I will be his God And he shall be my son. But in verse 8, he talks about the unsaved. These are those who will not make it to heaven. And notice how he doesn't just say the unsaved. These are unsaved people. But he's describing what unsaved people are like. He says this, but the cowardly. Now, we've all had fear at times and maybe, you know, been a little cowardly at times. These descriptions that that are being described here by God, actually this doesn't mean if you've ever done this one time in your life, you're not saved. No, it's talking about if this is the lifestyle of a person, then they're not saved. The cowardly, he's talking specifically here about those who are too cowardly, too afraid to confess Jesus Christ openly and publicly before men. One of the things that I have been blessed by in recent weeks when we give this invitation is to see how many people are unashamedly standing up, confessing their faith in Jesus Christ. For example, last, we keep giving this report every week. The crowds don't get any bigger, but the people getting saved keeps happening. Last Sunday, to the glory of God, 16 people got saved between these two morning services. 16 people last week. Now, how do we know they got saved? Because when we ask them to stand up, they stood up. You know, I'm liking this standing up. Dad and I were talking about that on the phone. We've never given an invitation like this. We've always said, come forward. Well, right now you can't come forward. So he's saying, stand up. I said to him the other day, I said, you know, this may be a better way. It's like the old hymn, stand up, stand up for Jesus. And we're having people call us during the week saying, when y'all finish those sermons, especially if it's my week, they say, if John will ever finish his sermon, we want to stand up. Our child wants to stand up. We want to stand up and take our stand for Jesus. Well, that's, if somebody does that, they're showing courage, but the cowardly don't do that. They don't confess their faith because they don't have it. And then he says the unbelieving, that is those who don't trust Christ. That's, those are unsaved people. Abominable, look at this list, murderers. That doesn't mean if you've ever committed murder that you can't be saved you can be saved. We read about murders in the Bible who got saved. Murders today get saved. God can forgive the sin of murder just like he can forgive the sin of lying. But if a person's lifestyle is one of murdering with no repentance, that person is not saved. Sexual, sexually immoral. That doesn't mean if a person's ever been sexually immoral, they can't be, go to heaven. But it means if their lifestyle is one of sexual promiscuity and immorality, it means they've never been saved. Sorcerers, talking about witchcraft here, idolaters, And all liars doesn't mean if you're ever told a lie, you can't go to heaven. But it means if your lifestyle is one of constant lying, that's an indication that you've never been saved. And he says, they shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone which is the second death. So John says, listen, you need to understand this. Heaven, it's an amazing place. He's having this vision. He said, man, in heaven, everything is new. Even the location, it's coming down out from above, and it's coming down to where we are. And God now is reunited with his people. Paradise lost. Paradise now has been regained, and God is there. But not only is it new, it is perfect. The presence of God, the absence of problems, the restoration of all things, satisfaction like we've never known in all of our lives, but he says you need to understand this about heaven. Not everyone will be there. What is God saying to us? God is saying that if you want to go to heaven one day, that you've got to make a decision now. If you want to end up in heaven, you've got to make a decision on earth to repent of your sins, to ask Christ to save you, And to trust Him to do it. There has to be a moment in time. Now, not everybody knows when that moment in time was, but there is nonetheless a moment in time when a person crosses from death into life, from darkness into light. And the way we know we've crossed that line is now we're trusting Christ. We may not, most people know when they cross that line, but not everybody does. But if you're trusting Christ now, that means you trusted Christ sometime in the past. Another way we know we've crossed that line is now we have a love for God's Word. We have a love for God. We want to be in His will. We want, to, we want to do what's right. And so we've crossed that line. But whether a person knows when that moment was or not is not the main thing. The main thing is, has there been that moment? Has there been a time in your life when you crossed that line and when you received Jesus Christ? And I think people hear that and they say, well, we'd expect you to wrap the sermon up by giving us an opportunity to be saved. That's just kind of the, the way to do it. Well, it's the way to do it because it's the way God put it in the Bible. To preach a sermon and not give an appeal is like giving somebody a menu at a restaurant and not taking the order. It, it'd be like saying, did you see the menu? Yes. Did you find what you like? Yes, that looks good. Thank you for coming. Have a nice day. No. You look at the menu, see what you want, you make the order, they bring the food, you eat the food, Right to preach a sermon and end it right now and say, everybody agree? Amen, thank you, God bless, have a good day. No, you give the appeal. What is a preacher doing right now? I'll tell you what a preacher is doing in this moment. A preacher, a man of God, is doing what? He is calling out the called. Those whom God has called, the preacher now is calling. And the preacher is doing what? He's encouraging those whom God has called privately to come forward publicly. And to receive Christ and to be saved. And a sermon without an invitation, whether it's stand up, come forward, or go to... It doesn't doesn't matter how you do that part, but a sermon without an invitation is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction of terms. It is is ridiculous to preach a sermon and not give people a chance to respond. And I'll tell you how recently I saw the importance of an invitation was yesterday. Less than 24 hours ago, I stood right here with a family to preach a funeral... For a young man, 25 years old, who had served our country in the Air Force, grown up in this church, and a week ago was shot and killed. And the reason he was shot is he was in a place where somebody was being bullied, and he tried to step in there and take up for the underdog. And when he did it, he got shot, 25 years old. And I'm very close to the family. And so they asked me to do the service. I've known them for a long time. I did the, I did, I've done weddings. I've known this family very well. Well, I was talking to them during the week, trying to plan the service for the young man. Cody Hutton is his name. And I was trying to g- learn th- how they wanted the service to go, things I could say, and so on. And I, want, I knew he had grown up here in the church, but I, I, I didn't know about his relationship with the Lord. And so I wanted to get into that, but I wanted to get into it carefully because if he had never been saved, I didn't want the family feeling worse than they already felt. But I needed to know. And so I'm asking as delicately, as tenderly as I could to different family members. And, and, and they assured me that he had been saved. But I didn't have as many details as I wanted. And so I got his grandmother on the phone, who's a, she and her husband are dear friends and faithful members of this church. And I said to her, I said, we were talking, I said, Nancy, let me ask you a question. I said, I know Cody was saved. I said, but do you know when he got saved? Do you know the details of that? Because if you do, I, I'd like to tell that at the service. She said, oh, yeah, I know the details. She said, you know, John, about 10 or 12 years ago, when he was in about the 7th, 8th, ninth grade in there somewhere, she said the church was having youth camp one, one summer. And she said he wanted to go and his sister wanted to go. And they didn't have the money to go. And she said, so I told them, if you want to go to camp, I'll pay for you to go to camp. And so she said, I wrote the check, and they went to camp. And she said, the Friday after camp was over, when, they, when the buses came back and the parents or grandparents were picking up our kids, she said, Cody and, and his sister Stephanie got in my car, and they said to me, they said, that was the funnest week we've ever had in our life. And they said, even better than being fun, we both got saved, and we can't wait to get baptized. And Chris, you know what they told me? They, they ended up, some of that family moved across town. They were going to Sugar Creek Baptist Church, where you were over there before you came here. So they were splitting time between here and there. But whether you're going to First Baptist or Sugar Creek or so, that doesn't matter. The important thing is that fella got saved. at youth. So I was able to stand here yesterday and say, on the authority of God's word, we know where he is today. And I said to his grandmother, I said, you know, Nancy, I don't know how much that camp cost. I said, but that's the best money you've ever spent in all your life. Now, what ha- see, when we think about death, Hoyt Robertson, his 90s. D.A. Buell was in his 90s. David Hood, 90 years old. That's how we think of death. When they get to be about 90-something, you need to know it could happen anytime, right? Well, it could happen anytime. Yesterday, 25, it doesn't matter if you're 95, 25, 15, or 10, it could happen anytime. And the question is this, has there been a time in your life when you have made peace with God, where you've been saved, so that one day you can go to heaven.